Welcome to Ask Peggy About Your Finances, because prosperity is so much more than money. Brought to you by writer, speaker, and certified financial planner, Peggy Doviak. Thank you to Sports Talk 1400 in Norman for production and studio assistance. Hello, and welcome to the Ask Peggy About Your Finances show. My name is Peggy Doviak, and I'm a certified financial planner practitioner. This is a show to help you understand your money. In today's episode, we're going to look at the recent stock market correction and reasons that it might have happened. We're also going to look at both the fate of a new COVID relief package as well as legislation helping you understand the fees associated with mutual funds. In the Plan Your Prosperity segment this week, I have a really important discussion about the recent payroll tax holiday and the implications for you. And then finally in Ask Peggy, we're going to look at stock splits and what they mean and why companies do them. So let's get started with the Bulls and Bears Market and Economic Update. This is for the week that ended September 11th 2020 and it's remarkable that we are 19 years from that absolutely horrible day and you know it sounds very trite to say thoughts and prayers but certainly my thoughts were with everyone on Friday as well as every day who suffered loss and it just seems like that has to be said and it needs to be said every single year. The market last week was very, very volatile. I don't know if you were tracking it or not, but we had huge shifts in what was going on. And for the week, the Dow closed down a little over one and a half percent, which feels fairly remarkable given how much it moved during the course of the week. The S&P 500 did a little bit worse and it closed down just a tiny bit over two and a half percent. The NASDAQ had the worst stock market week of all, and it closed down a little over 4%. Gold, not a surprise, went up about a third of a percent. West Texas Intermediate Crude went down about 5.3%. The 10-year Treasury yield went down again 4.88%. And even the bond fund couldn't manage a gain. The aggregate bond fund, AGG, went down 1.21%. The dollar index went down 0.27%. So what's going on in the market? And I've been reading a lot, and there's a lot of people who say, you know, they just don't know. Is this the start of a larger correction? You know, it might be. It might be. You you don't know. Anybody who says they know for sure what the market's going to do tomorrow really has a crystal ball that none of the rest of us have. And I would kind of doubt that they know as much what they're saying as they might want you to believe that they do. But a number of us have a theory, and I had this theory before I found out that other people had the same theory. You have to go back to August to figure out what's going on in September. August is historically a very light trading volume month in the stock market because unlike Oklahoma, East Coast schools don't go back until after Labor Day. So August is the big month for family vacations, 
taking some time off on Wall Street with not as many traders on the floor. Anytime you have lighter trading volume, the movements in the stock market get a little bit more pronounced. So if there's good news, the markets will tend to go up a little bit more than they would on heavy volume. If the news is bad, the market tends to drop more than it would on heavy volume. So light trading volume tends to cause markets to be more extreme. So as a result, forever, I have called August kind of the silly season on the stock market. Now, this is the year that is different than all other years. I understand that. But I suspect that a lot of traders had vacation time scheduled well ahead of this. A lot of big time um, portfolio managers, even if they're not on the trading floor, that Wall Street just tends to take a break in August. They were already scheduled for some time off, and you might as well take that time off even if it's a staycation. Remember, too, that on the East Coast, things are a little bit more settled than they are here in the middle of the country, and so some things are beginning to open. In fact, I just saw here over this weekend that some of the museums in New York City are getting to reopen with masks and reservations and limited attendance. So August would have been a good month to take off, even if your great vacation plan got screwed up. So August moved up a lot. Remember, the August data was huge. We had major gains in the stock market in August, and some of it was deserved. I mean, no doubt, I've never seen a situation where a market that would have gone up goes down when there's light trading volume, and the reverse. You know, if it's supposed to go down, it doesn't go up. It tends to just go more in the direction it ought to have gone. Then everybody comes back in September is like, whoa, this is a little extreme. And so a lot of times what you'll get in September is a reaction to what happened in August. And there's a very good chance that what's going on with the market correction right now is simply trying to undo some of the irrational exuberance that we had in August so that the market is moving up in more of an orderly fashion. Remember, we don't want markets to go straight up. When markets are going straight up, it's very indicative that you're in a bubble. So you want markets to correct along the way. It's never fun when it happens, but good, healthy corrections let a stock market rally continue. Now, there's some question. Is that what's going on right now? And I think it certainly has been at first. We'll have to watch the markets, see if this is the beginning of a more major pullback. Um, you wouldn't have a market crash because you had a good August. So if the market continues to drop, you know, this might be more reason to concern. Right now, I wouldn't really panic. I think we're really going to have to watch the action over what happens this coming up week, maybe even the week after that, before we're going to understand whether or not what the markets have done so far in September is the beginning of a movement or if it's simply a correction for a little more excitement than they probably should have had in August. As always, I watch this stuff and tell you about it so you don't have to pay as much attention, but it's always good to know what's going on. It's always good to talk to your financial team and make sure that you guys are all in agreement about what makes sense to do with your money. Thank you to Sports Talk 1400 in Norman 
for production and studio assistance. Welcome back to the legislative update of the Ask Peggy About Your Finances show. And today I have two interesting pieces of information to report. The first is it does not look right now that there's going to be another COVID relief bill. There's been strong expectation that we would have another COVID relief package, probably something that would pay um, individuals checks like the first package did, possibly increase unemployment benefits, a number of things that would have made people's life easier. And back in the spring, the House of Representatives passed the HEROES bill that then went to the Senate. It was not approved by the Senate. And the Senate proposed its own legislation this week that, um, according to what I read, was about a seventh of the size of the HEROES Act. The HEROES Act was a really big piece of legislation the Republican version was one-seventh of that. It was not supported by the Democratic senators in the Senate along with Rand Paul because there was a concern that some of the things that it needed to cover, it absolutely didn't. There were no more direct payments to Americans as, possi- as part of it. There was not that $300 additional jobless claim, um, jobless um, unemployment benefit that was expected to be part of it. And also it did not include any additional funding for the increase in absentee ballot through the Postal Service. And because of that, there was no Democratic support for the bill. And it looks now like they're just simply going to abandon the whole thing. And from what I've been reading, it looks like the compromise is that the Senate is going to go ahead and pass a continuance bill to keep the government running rather than having the government shut down um, in September as we so currently have threatened anymore. You know, it used to be government shutdowns hardly ever were threatened. This year, it seems like it's an annual occurrence. Apparently, that's not going to be an annual occurrence, so they've decided that leaving the government open will be the next coronavirus relief package. I'm sorry for anyone who is counting on that benefit. We'll have to wait and see. You know, sometimes everybody gets their back up, and I'm not going to do that. And then when the American public starts pushing back, you start getting some change in posture, change in tone. But I'm not sure because the last jobs number that came out was actually fairly good. Now, there's a lot of reasons for that. A lot of times, remember, unemployment is only a benefit you receive if, in fact, your job isn't there. There are a lot of people who aren't working because the jobs that they had are not jobs that they feel they can safely do at this point. So if you have at-risk family members at home, a lot of people are feeling as though it's not safe to go back to those. Well, the minute there's a job that you could take, you just simply don't take it, then you're not eligible for unemployment anymore. So I'm I'm wondering whether or not we're getting data, and, and the data is accurate. That's always been the definition of unemployment. It only covered the people who were seeking work who couldn't find it. But I wonder if that data is really reflective of what's going on. 
probably doesn't make any difference whether it is or whether it isn't related to this next round of coronavirus stimulus. But for right now, things aren't looking great. I hope that something comes up. And certainly if I hear any rumors, I'll tell you guys here first. Right now, it doesn't look that hot. There was a second piece of legislation this week that I wanted to talk to you about. It's interesting to me for a couple of different reasons. It's a House bill that was submitted by Representative Tom Emmer. It's E-M-M-E-R, and I'm only spelling it in case I've just killed the pronunciation. Republican out of Minnesota that makes it harder for mutual fund investors to sue the asset managers of funds overcharging excessive fees. And the legal language behind that kind of a lawsuit is a 36B claim. So 36, then parenthesis, lowercase b, close parenthesis claim. And those lawsuits have been getting less common anyway. This is when an investor believes that a fund is charging more money than they should for the kind of service that they're providing. Remember, when you're looking at especially actively managed mutual funds or exchange-traded funds, you always pay a premium for that active management. And sometimes it makes sense to pay that premium. Sometimes the fund manager is great. Sometimes the fund manager isn't performing in ways that the fund's supposed to perform. And so sometimes the active management doesn't make sense. I, I am not opposed to actively managed funds. I just think it's really important to make sure that the performance is worth the fees that you're paying. So that's the first reminder that I would give you as you're looking at your mutual fund fees, your exchange traded fund fees, sub account fees and annuities, all of those. It's really important to look to see what you're getting for what you're paying. The second piece of this though, was language that I've seen the most directly used and it ties to another issue. If you're a long listener of this show or podcast, you know that I talk a lot about fiduciary standards on the part of financial professionals. And you know that I think it's really important for a financial professional to act as a fiduciary. And between regulation best interest proposed by the SEC last year through the Department of Labor picking up that same standard this year, all of the language around what it means to be a fiduciary is really confusing. However, very early on when I started doing this research, I was told that the difference between a fiduciary level of care and a non-fiduciary level of care had to do with burden of proof in case someone issues a complaint. So if an advisor is not a fiduciary and a consumer comes forward and says, there's just something hinky going on here. I don't understand it, but I think there's something that my advisor is doing that he or she shouldn't do. If that advisor is not a fiduciary, the burden of proof to prove that the behavior is bad falls on the client, the consumer. On the other hand, if an advisor is a fiduciary and a complaint is issued, then the burden of proof is on the advisor to prove the good behavior. 
So if a consumer says, wow, there, there's just something wrong, I don't understand it, I just feel like it's wrong, then an advisor who holds a fiduciary level of care has to say, okay, this is what it is, this is why it is the way it is, and they have to prove that they were acting, um, they were acting properly, okay? And that has been the legal distinction. It's not really a very commonly used distinction, but when I read the summary of this new legislation, I am going to read you language out of the bill. I'm going to try to find a copy of the bill. If I can't find the bill, I'll include a copy of this article because I'm doing a direct quote. Amherst bill introduced Tuesday would require plaintiffs who filed so-called 36B excessive fee lawsuits to, quote, spell out the factual basis for their claims with clear and convincing evidence, close quote, an announcement from the congressman's office stated. And I did read that sentence from the article, so I will include that as well. So what we have is the consumer, the person who thinks that this fund manager has charged too much, must spell out the factual basis for their claims with clear and convincing evidence. The burden of proof is on the consumer. This is a direct outcome of all of the watering down of the fiduciary standard. Because an advisor or a fund, and I understand this is a mutual fund, so it's not an absolutely 100% application, but it's about a 95% application. It's up to the consumer to explain it rather than being up to that fund manager to explain why that fee was warranted. And that, boys and girls, is the difference between fiduciary and non-fiduciary. Now you're seeing how it can play out in real life. And it took an otherwise kind of, you know, because I don't figure this legislation is probably going anywhere. I will track it because now I'm really curious to see how this goes. But if nothing else, it's an opportunity to see why the fiduciary standard still matters. And this is why people are working so very hard to use confusing language and still not hold the standard. It's up to you as the consumer to ask the question so that you can be sure that the person you're working with has the standard of care that you want. Thank you to Sports Talk 1400 in Norman for production and studio assistance. Welcome back to the Plan Your Prosperity segment of the Ask Peggy About Your Finances show. And I have an important topic to talk to you guys about today. That is your current deferred Social Security tax liability if you're working for certain employers. You may know that back on August 8th, President Trump signed a memorandum that was that day then put into effect by the U.S. Treasury Department as well as the Internal Revenue Service, the IRS. This memorandum allows employers to choose to not deduct Social Security insurance payments as part of your payroll taxes for their employees. Now, your share of the Social Security tax is 6.2% every month. So what's happened in effect, if your employer has opted to do this, you receive a raise of 6.2% for September, October, November, and December. 
And that would be great, except you owe that tax starting in January. And so the way people expect it to work is for January, February, March, and April, not only will the 6.2% of Social Security tax that should have been withheld come out, but an additional 6.2% a month will be withheld to pay back what you didn't have to pay this fall. So a lot of people are confused because especially with all of the COVID-related relief, some of it's had to be paid back, some of it hasn't, some of it, it depended upon how you handled things. So here's what you need to know. This is not a gift. It is a deferral of your liability, and it's going to come due in January. Now, the president says if he gets reelected, that will become permanent. That actually isn't possible. All a president can do is defer the taxation. He can't outright cancel it, or she can't outright cancel it. That's something that would have to be done by Congress. And additionally, if in fact no one was funding Social Security, the system would collapse by 2023. So I don't think Congress is going to pass a rule like that no matter who the president is come January of 2021. So you need to plan on paying it back. How do you know if it's being deducted or not? Well, the easiest way is to ask your employer. Okay, so if it's a small business, you can ask your employer. What I'm finding is a lot of business owners are actually not opting to do this because it's kind of a nightmare when you're trying to process payroll to suddenly all at once shift what you're doing and what you're not doing. And additionally, a lot of employers don't actually think it's in their employees' best interest to give them money for four months that they're going to have to start paying back. It's not like this is an extended deferral. It's not even likely that any COVID-related expenses are going to be gone by January. So most employers aren't doing it. There are some notable exceptions. The United States government is doing it. Now, it doesn't happen to every single employee, but if you make $4,000 gross biweekly or less, you are eligible for this program. If you make more than that, then you're not. So it absolutely depends on how much money you make. Why did this get into it? Well, if you remember, Social Security tax isn't charged on every dollar that you make. And the original phase out of Social Security liability was that $8,000 a month level, roughly, you know, eight times 12 is 96. It was about $100,000 when Social Security first went into effect that you only paid it on your first 100,000. Now, what's kind of peculiar about this is you would have paid it on your first 100,000 even if you made more money than that. So the fact that making more money takes you out of the program altogether is just sort of a weird component of this. So if you make more than 4,000 every two weeks, it probably hasn't happened. 
I would advise you to check your paycheck anyway. I am not suggesting your employer is trying to do anything wrong, but this is so confusing that I would just check. So talk to your employer. If you don't feel confident doing that, then you need to get a hold of a pay stub back in August and compare it to a pay stub in September. Now, here's what you need to know. You won't see anywhere where Social Security is being withheld. But if you see FICA, F-I-C-A, FICA and Social Security are the same thing. So if your FICA was withheld in August and isn't being held in September, you can't actually fix that. You can't go to your employer and say, hey, I don't want to participate. If your employer has opted in, you're in. What I strongly recommend that you do is take that amount of money and lay it aside because you're going to owe it back next year. I, I just can't imagine a scenario where that won't happen. Now, it should be noted that when Steve Mnuchin was questioned about how they would handle the fact that um, President Trump wanted to make this payroll tax holiday permanent, he said, well, if they do it, the federal government will just come in and start paying for the program. The risk to that, according to the Washington Post, and I agree, I'll post the link um, in the information about the show, is the minute it becomes a government program, it's much easier to cut it. Okay, but it's not money that you're putting in on your own behalf. It's much easier for the government to come in and say, you know what, we're just not going to fund this anymore. Our budget is out of balance. And quite frankly, if the federal government tried to go in and pay the employer and the employee side, it would be a huge amount of additional expense. So it doesn't really look like this is permanent. So you need to lay the money back. You need to take care, make sure that you find out whether or not it's being deducted. If it isn't being deducted, I strongly recommend that you lay it back. If, if your financial world is blowing up in a temporary way right now, then you don't have to lay it back. But you do have to know that whether you have the money or not, it's coming out of your paycheck come January. And that could really cause you a problem that you're not expecting. So be careful with this. It doesn't make a lot of sense when you start working through all of the details. And the fact that it's not being evenly applied makes it even more confusing. If you don't work for the government, most employers aren't doing it. If you do work for the government, it may. Other employers are opting in. We'll just have to wait and see what happens. In the meantime, you need to be very careful to take care of yourself. Thank you to Sports Talk 1400 in Norman for production and studio assistance. Welcome back to the Ask Peggy segment of the Ask Peggy About Your Finances show. And this is my favorite part of the show, where you ask me questions. If you'd like to submit a question to the show, go to askpeggy.com, that's A-S-K-P-E-G-G-Y.com, and you'll see the box where you can submit a question. Then I'll get some information from you and create an educational answer I can share with the listeners. So today's question is, Peggy, in light of what Apple and Tesla are doing, what's a stock split? A stock split is a revenue-neutral event, typically done when a stock becomes really expensive and it's hard for people to buy. 
When a stock splits, you have twice the number of shares at half the price of what you had prior to the stock split. So let's assume that you had 100 shares of a stock that cost $100 a share. After a split, you would have 200 shares of a stock that cost $50 a share. The investment would be worth exactly the same, but now the stock is cheaper. The idea is when stocks are cheaper and more affordable, people are more likely to purchase them. That's why companies will opt into a stock split to make it easier for people to buy a stock that has become extremely expensive. So you might see growth afterwards. It's not guaranteed, but that's what the employer hopes. We're out of time for this week. Have a great week. Thank you to Sports Talk 1400 and Norman for production and studio assistance. You may submit personal finance questions to the Ask Peggy Facebook page and learn more at PeggyDoviak.com. And remember, prosperity is so much more than money.